What's up? What's up? Welcome to another episode of Stat Stories, a Stat Muse original. I'm Chad Shanks. And I am Justin Kamatko. The NBA draft is the biggest crapshoot there is, with teams pouring in weeks of scouting and evaluation only to end up hoping for some good luck on draft night. Furthermore, trying to evaluate whether or not a pick was successful has proven just as difficult. For every once-in-a-generation talent like LeBron or every Trailblazers player that ends up on crutches, there's a myriad of picks who fall somewhere in between superstar and super bust. So we're going to apply a custom calculation to objectively determine which players, teams, and GMs have been Draft Night's biggest success stories in Episode 29, Lucky Stars. So at the time that we're recording this, a bunch of front offices across the country in the NBA are going through stacks of papers, running computer projections, throwing things up on whiteboards, just trying to do everything they can to get an advantage going into the NBA draft of 2017. But it seems as though, if history is any indication, the teams could just have the same amount of success by roughly flipping a coin to make all of their decisions. Because that's exactly what an article from 2014 in The Atlantic says, that flipping a coin is pretty much exactly what they're doing. So since the ABA-NBA merger in 1976, only 54.3% of players selected in the top three were ranked as above average in production of wins per 48 minutes four years into their careers. So according to that, landing a quote-unquote good player based on that criteria in the top three picks is little better than a coin flip. You're going into this thing with all your due diligence and coming out just hoping for a little bit better than a 50-50 chance. So... Even you know, though but, but, are... real quick, real quick, real quick. One thing I think we should note there is that, yeah, on average it might be a coin flip, like like this person is saying, but some teams are using waiting. Some teams are using weighted coins. We'll see this later. But there are some teams that are very successful at the draft. Yeah, and then other teams not so successful. So, on average, it may be like a weighted. Uh, I'm sorry. On, on average, it may be like uh, flipping a coin. But like I said, there are teams with weighted coins in this in this whole thing. Yeah, some teams are cheating a little bit, but even though there are so many whiffs um, and the odds are seemingly stacked against teams, they, like you said, some do get lucky and land a superstar in the lottery and others will continue to find talent regardless of where they're picking. But it is so if you're trying to evaluate who's the best at drafting or who's the best draft pick or any of that kind of stuff, it's not just enough to say, okay, well... Kevin Durant has been way better than Greg Oden, so the Thunder are the better drafting team. Because, number one, not every situation is that obvious, and there are so many factors that go into it that need to be taken into account. So, like I said, that Atlantic article, which we'll uh, provide a link to in our blog, you can check it out yourself, but it just has a blanket application across all players of their average productions of win per wins per 48 minutes. And so... That doesn't necessarily mean a player is that he's wrong or that it's, that is not correct, but there are other factors going into it. And like so, if a player is drafted first overall or if they're drafted 60th overall, we have different expectations there. And if they have the same wins per 48 minutes, well, then one is obviously a better pick than the other. So, Justin Cabaco, this is where you come in. 
This is a problem that people are just crying out. They need someone to solve it. They need someone who's gonna dig down and do the, the dirty numbers work, and that's where you come in. So, Justin Kabatko, how can we quantitatively evaluate the NBA draft given the multitude of variables that are involved? It's a complex No pressure, question, by the way. Which no does pressure. not have a simple answer. And does You've not got have about one. 30 minutes to solve this. Yeah. Go. And it does not have just one answer. There are many ways you could go about this. But let, let me talk about something I did. Back in, in 2013, I did some work for ESPN Insider. And what they wanted me to do was they wanted me to evaluate the careers of NBA lottery picks. I'm sure that that article still available on Insider somewhere. I ain't paying for it. One of the things. Just, just send me the text. <laughs> well, I would if my ESPN Insider uh, subscription hadn't uh, run out. Anyway, one of the things that always bugged me about that work I did for Insider was, was the fact that I, I assumed that the first overall pick would always have the same expected career value regardless of the talent available that particular year. And we know that's not really the case, right? You know, some years you have a Tim Duncan or a Shaquille O'Neal or a LeBron James available, and, and the top pick is obvious. In other years, you have, say, Brad Doherty available, who actually was a really good NBA player, solid NBA player, uh, was the number one overall pick in his draft. But obviously, you wouldn't have the same expectation for him as you would for those other guys that I mentioned. So I wanted to wait. he's a solid, uh, solid NASCAR analyst. Or he was for a little bit. And he is. Isn't that crazy? I always thought, thought that I'm using that Brad Doherty became this this uh, noted NASCAR analyst. Pretty funny. What do you, what do you got to say yes. about that? There goes my journalistic career down the tube. There goes your credibility, Brad. Good thing you can play basketball, big guy. <laughs> and actually, now he's back to doing a lot of basketball work for, for ESPN. Anyway, off track. He had to pay, so, had to pay his dues. You got to pay yes. your dues in NASCAR. Well, he's a Southern boy, so I can understand the NASCAR attraction. I'm a Southern boy. I, I'm not going to sit around and watch people drive for four hours. I, I, re, I respect, before we get NASCAR fan attacking us, I respect the, I, how difficult it is, but still, it's people driving in a circle. It's just not my thing. Nor mine. But, tweet, but yeah, like you tweet. Said, we're, we're, come we're, at me. We're, come at me, NASCAR bros. All right, anyway, getting back to the point. So, yeah, th this assumption that, that all first overall picks should have the same expected career value wasn't a good one and so I wanted a way to account for that quirk. So what I thought you should do is I thought you should compare a player's expected value which would be based on his draft slot. So what I mean by that is like if you take a player first overall you're going to expect that he's going to produce the most career value of anybody in that particular draft pool, right? Or if you're making the second pick overall sort of the inherent assumption is that you're going to get the player who produces the second most career value in that draft and so on. Yeah, so just and on, I think on down the line. Very rare exceptions where a team isn't actually going for the best available player at, at any time, at least what they what they perceive to be. Right now, I mean, like later in the first round, the second round, it's it's probably uh, more likely that you're going to target a particular need rather than yeah. best player available. But yeah, early in the draft, especially in the lottery, you're almost always you're going, going to take for a the best available player. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you're the Portland Trailblazers and you take Sam Bowie before Michael Jordan. Anyway, um, so what you have to do then, so like I said, okay, that's, that's expectation is that that player will produce the most value. The first pick will produce the most value and so on. And then you want to figure out a way to assign a career value to every player because then you can say, okay, well, this was their expectation and this is where they actually fell based on the career that they had. So I wanted to come up with a way to assign a career value to every player. 
And what I decided to do was use a waiting scheme that was popularized by Doug Drennan, who's the creator of Pro Football Reference and a friend of mine and somebody I used to work with. So let me just read you Doug's description of the method before we move on here. And so now, starting now, this will be Doug's words. My opinion is that most people mentally rank players by counting all the players' seasons, but weighting their best seasons more. In order to mimic that, I've defined each player's career value to be 100% of his best season, plus 95% of his second best season, plus 90% of his third best season, etc. So for two players with the same career totals, the one with the higher peak will be rated a little higher. And junk seasons at the end of a player's career count for almost nothing. End of quote. Okay, so like, like Doug's saying there, you're basically coming up with a system where you're taking each player's seasons into account, but you're going to weight his best seasons a little more. And those seasons he had at the end of his career where maybe he was an useful player really won't carry much weight at all. Makes sense? Okay, so like, yeah, so like Shaq won't be downgraded because of those like years he spent plotting in Phoenix and Boston and Cleveland and all that kind of stuff. It's going to focus mostly on when he was the most dominant big force the game's ever seen. Exactly, right. Or like a guy like Robert Parrish who played 20-something seasons in the NBA. Like those seasons he had at the end of his career where he was nothing more than like a big man who would come off the bench and play 10 or 15 minutes, those aren't going to hurt him. They're not going to help him, really, but they're not going to hurt him either. You know, that, that really then, shouldn't... If you, think, if you think about it, like what a guy does in year 20 really should have no influence over how you would rate his career for the most part. Unless you're Vince Carter and... Or uh, Andre Miller, and just can continue to, to just go and go and go. Have the, let's put in a Vince Carter exception. Okay, we'll, we'll do that. Maybe next time we'll do this, we'll, we'll do that. Think about so it. So I decided, I decided to use Doug's method as my blueprint, and so basically what I did is this. I said, okay, for each season, I'm going to define the player's value to be his regular season wins above replacement. Wins above replacement is just a measure I have in my database that I use to... to uh, to measure each player's success or failure in a given season. Then I ordered those season values from best to worst. So his most wins above replacement is first, second most is second, and so on all the way down. And then I took 100% of his best season, 95% of his second best season, 90% of his third best season, did that and added all those up. And that's the player's career value. And I don't want to get into a whole thing where we talk about here are the top 10 players, those sorts, those sorts of uh, things. But let me tell you that in the lottery era, so lottery era only, the player who produced the most career value was, surprise, surprise, LeBron James. Okay. Surprise, surprise. But he's right. not as good as MJ, but MJ's still the go, but MJ never lost in the finals. Sorry, just covering yeah. our, got to cover our bases because anytime you say anything good about LeBron, you're going to get attacked by, by the LeBron trolls. But if you want to hear us, as, as we, we found this out after last, last week's episode, Teflon LeBron. So be sure and check that one out. Shameless plug. Shame. Yeah, so then what I did was I decided like, okay, so I looked at the lottery era only. So 1985, which was the first year the lottery was used. And then I went up through 2012. And I stopped at 2012 because that would give the players in that draft uh, five NBA seasons to prove themselves. And I thought that was sort of a, a reasonable number. Like, you know, it's, it's not really fair, I don't think, to go back and rate last year's draft class based solely on what they did this past season. That one season is not enough to really figure out if a pick was, was a good one or a bad one. Yeah. And, and because I don't think they're two or three still years. way too terrible, especially last year's draft class. <laughs> yeah. And, and even, you know, two or three years, it, it's still, there's still a lot of, lot can happen. 
And even with five years, I've chosen five years, even that, you know, still things, crazy things could happen. But anyway, I, I thought it was a reasonable cutoff. So what I did was I took every first, and round sec, first round draft pick and second round draft pick from that time span, and I calculated their career value. And then I compared it to what we would have expected based on where they were draft. And so I created a draft, what I called a draft score for each player. Now these draft scores are going to be either positive, negative, or zero. Guys that overachieved, in other words, they produced more career value than you would have expected given where they were picked, they have positive scores. Guys who were exactly where you would have expected, they have scores of zero. And guys that underachieved have negative scores. Okay? So let's not talk about all the math behind it, but let's just think about that. Like, okay, positive score yeah, that's means good. you over... Let's not talk... Yeah, let's just accept it and move forward. Right, so positive... Be, I'd be the uh, Russell Westbrook uh, reaction gif the whole, the whole episode. What? Bro, what are you talking about, man? Yeah, no, that's, that's good. So, but yeah, one, like thing I said, I, one thing I don't want to accept, though, is you're, you're not marketing this well. Just saying, oh, I created this and called it draft scores. That's not sexy. That's not gonna that's not gonna sell any books. We need to we need to liven this up a little bit. So I wanna call we're gonna call this this is your, the Justin Kabatko draft analysis system. So we're gonna we're gonna call it the Kadraftco system. And it's gonna catch on like fire. And everyone's gonna be talking about, oh that guy that guy was great. He had a, a three point three point three Kadraftco score. Eh? That's terrible. That's terrible. Eh? Shame. I like. I sleep on it. We'll we'll see. It might. It might. I might change the episode title to the Kadrafco system. It's even hard to say. Maybe that's a bad. Maybe that's a bad side. All right. Are you done? Let's Are go on. Done? Let's go on, and we can learn about draft scores or the Kadrafco system. All right, dun, so dun, the, the main thing here is, is not like not to use it for individual players. The reason I created this was because I wanted ways to sort of evaluate teams or executives over a long period of time. So let's maybe get into some examples here and, and talk about uh, some of the results I found. Let's do it. Okay, so if you remember, those of you who've been listening to us for a while might remember that... I don't know how long ago was it, Chad, but about a year ago, we did a, a podcast on the biggest draft busts of all time. Is that right? Yep, it was one of our first episodes. Right. So let's let's maybe not talk a whole lot about the biggest busts, but real quick, if you look back at the uh, the drafts from '85 to 2012, the biggest busts were I'm just going to name the top five: Michael Oluwakandi, Greg Oden, Len Bias, Kwame Brown. Hashim Thabit. Now, and this is bias, based on course, your, the Kadraftco score. Right, it's just based on the draft score, period. And of course, bias that deserves a little bit of an asterisk because bias sadly never got even, never got the chance to play in the NBA. Drafted by the Celtics, he died of a drug overdose just two days after the 1986 NBA draft. Extremely sad story. So he's on that list, but like you know, he never really even got a chance to prove himself. Wait, so but Michael think the Candy is worse than a dead guy? Oh, let's that's not how there. okay. That's that's how bad he was. That a, a guy who never made the court, he was still less valuable than that guy. Yeah, I guess. I guess if you want to put it wow. that way. Yeah. No, I didn't think about that. Candy, way, but... Not a good look. No, not at all. Um, yeah, 
Okay. Well, well, and, and well, Michael's expectation was just a tad higher since he was the first overall pick, and Bias was just the second. So I guess that probably has a lot to do with it. Um. Anyway. Oh, okay. Well, so that'll be the <laughs> that'll be the uh, the little asterisk that Oloy Candy can rest on. Right, but I mean, and, you know, that that list, no really big surprises there, right? I mean, did you yeah. hear any name there where you said, "Oh well, no, that that's not right. That guy wasn't a bust." No, no, of course not. And I think it's important to say, like, when you're ranking it like this, like you said, just to reiterate, like, we're not saying like Michael Ola Candy was the worst player that's been drafted since 1985. He's it is very much based on your expectations, right? So he's. There are definitely some players, some bums who've been drafted who are, didn't put up anywhere near as have near as good a career as Oliver Candy. It's just when you're the first overall pick, a lot more is expected from you. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, like all those guys I mentioned, three of them were the first overall pick, and the other two were a number two pick. So yeah, I mean, the, being drafted high comes with rather high expectations, and these guys did not deliver. I think when we did the podcast, right, your choice was for the biggest bust was the beat, was it not? Yeah, so yeah, we definitely put in some, there's a lot of subjectiveness subjectiveness that went into it, but, um, you know, this is a way to hard and fast calculate who's who's the absolute worst. And you you did go with Oliver Candy, but you probably had this Kadrafco system in your back pocket and you're just now only sharing it with me. So in a way, you were you were cheating during that podcast or you were... You're not concealing all of your all of your interests, but anyway, that's the past. We're not going to dwell on the past, except for everything we're talking about in this podcast is dealing with the past. So, all right, who's the who's the other end of the spectrum? If Olua Candy is has the worst Kadraftko score, who's who's number one? And I'm still using that. I don't care. No one that's else fine. can see how much you're rolling your eyes at me right now, and like giving me he's giving me the uh, the throat the throat slit sign, like saying cut this out but that only just fuels me more and you know this so opposite end who's the who's the biggest draft steal then okay so yeah the biggest steal and i don't know how many people would would guess this but it was jeff hornacek so 1986 really was picked yeah hornacek was picked 46th overall that year and he actually produced the most career value in that draft believe it or not i mean yeah he's a he was a great player with those jazz teams, but I wouldn't expect him. To, I would never have just guessed, all right, Jeff Hornacek's the biggest steal of all time. Yeah, well, I mean, that draft has actually come up, though. The 86 draft, that was the year that Len Bias, like I mentioned earlier, was, was the second pick. Doherty was the first pick that year. Other busts that year were Chris Washburn. Remember him? Um, oh, yeah. William Bedford. Uh, you know, just just a lot of guys that year who just did not really pan out. That was not a great uh, draft year. And I think like anyway, yeah. So like Rodman was in that draft, right? Wasn't Rodman in '86? So I think he, like, you would definitely say he's the the best over, like a better overall player than Jeff Hornacek. Hornacek. Um, but it's just because Hornacek was. Well, I, well, I don't know. Would you? Would you though? I mean, I don't know. I, I have. I actually. You wouldn't say. say you wouldn't think... say Rodman was a better. Rodman's, are arguably the best rebounder of all time. I mean, what would you, Jeff Hornacek is just the best uh, at wiping his face at the free throw line, which was always nasty, by the way. For those that know, he used to do this thing where he would. When he was at the free throw line, he would wipe his face twice before he shot. That was but, like his routine. Okay, but do you know why he did that? Yeah, it was him 
uh, saying hello to his children, right? Exactly. Was, so there's a good, you know, that's a good nice and sweet. That's a good but story getting, behind it. He's getting his nasty sweat all over the ball. He's wiping it on his hands and then touching the ball. That's gross. That's gross. Don't do that. You ever played in a pickup game with sweaty guy and the ball hits him and then the, it just sticks to the ball? That's just that's just disgusting. I think I would factor that into his Kadrafko score that he just made the game more disgusting. But I think those Jazz teams made the game a lot dirtier for everyone in, in different ways. I mean, they would just knock the knock the hell out of you. But so what I want to ask is, all right, so with your system, does is is Ol Hornacek is it Hornacek or Hornacek? It's Hornacek, right? Hornacek. Did I say check? It's Hornacek. No, I think I said. I think I said it wrong. It was my fault. Okay. Hornacek. Is he elevated on your list because that draft class was so bad? So does Lynn Bias being no, 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 one no, of the no, 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 no. So it doesn't. It that doesn't account into it at at well, all. Well, I mean, no, no. I guess no. I guess it sort of does, right? Yeah, it does indirectly. Like if if yeah. you have a class where all the lottery picks turn out to be bums. Then yeah, that draft is going to produce a lot of high scores because that means the players who were selected later had better Got careers than the guys that were selected early, right? Yeah. So the '86 yeah. draft was a really weird one. So by the way, I measure it. Um, six of the top nine players in that draft were taken 24th or later, which is really weird. Uh, do you, I don't know. Does that have anything to do with just the whole lottery system being new and maybe it was an adjustment period? I, I don't. I'm not. Maybe think, it was all the drugs. Just, because there was a lot, I, I just, like Lynn Bias wasn't the only one I think that got in, caught, you know, had drug issues during that. No, during Chris. That time. Well, Chris Washburn, Chris Washburn, yeah. who I mentioned earlier, also had really bad drug problems that derailed what possibly could have been a very good career. Um, and then, yeah, that was just, and it was also just, I think, in drafts like that where I mentioned earlier that Brad Doherty, number one pick. I mean, there really wasn't a clear. This guy is absolutely the number one pick. And I think in years where you have that, you're going to end up with some some odd results because you, you don't have these guys who are who are the obvious top picks. Yeah. So who else do we have, who else do you have on that list as far as your biggest steals? Yeah, and then I mean, so go through the rest of it here. Just the rest of the top five. Second is Michael Red. He was taken 43rd. Isaiah Thomas, super underrated the, player. The modern Isaiah Thomas, who was believe it or not. The last pick in the 2011 NBA draft. Isn't that crazy to think about now? Yeah. I mean, he's an All NBA guard now, and yet he was like Mr. Irrelevant in the 2011 draft. Really strange. Uh, yeah, Mark Gasol so fourth. I'm oh, sorry. I'm oh, sorry. I was going to ask with your system. So Isaiah Thomas. I mean, he, this last season was, you know, the one that was really otherworldly great, and he had some decent ones before that. So is it? Would you assume a little bit, or is it possible? <clears throat> excuse me, that if Isaiah Thomas has one or two more seasons like he just had, that he's going to jump up a few spots and maybe become the biggest steal of all time? Since you're weighting things based on their on their best seasons, so I I, I have him as number two actually right now in that draft class, which was a loaded draft class: Kawhi Leonard, Isaiah Thomas, Jimmy Butler, Kyrie Irving, Kemba Walker, Clay Thompson. So a lot of good guys in that draft. The, the one guy who's ahead of him who I've rated ahead of him is Kawhi Leonard. If Isaiah passes him, his, his score will go up. Yeah. But he would have to pass Kawhi in order for his score to Right now, to go yeah. Up. And I think that, right, and there's a chance. Those guys, like there's, like I said, I don't, I don't really necessarily like this system for rating players, but like right behind him, you have Jimmy Butler, very close, and Kyrie Irving's not that far behind. So 
those guys that could pass him too. So I would say at this chance, at this time, he's just as likely. He's probably more likely actually to move down than he is to move up at this point. Hmm. Interesting. Ah, that's pretty interesting. But anyway, just so just finishing that list, like I said, Isaiah's third, Marcus fourth, Paul Millsap fifth. Gasol was a 48th pick, and Millsap was a 47th pick. So I mean, yeah, what what do these guys have in common? They're all second round draft picks who turned out to be NBA All Stars. <laughs> yeah, but they definitely are the exception that proves the rule. I never understood what that statement means, but yeah, I guess. <laughs> I think it's, it's just the tongue-in-cheek statement. Anyway, I know what it is. We, I know what it is. We're not. This isn't a linguistic podcast. Go elsewhere for that. We're we're talking about assigning numbers to human beings to determine how valuable they are, which is probably not the way you think of what you do, but it's kind of it's kind of what you do a little bit. So let's. I want to look back at it a little bit. Tell me. So you talk about how weighted it is based on where they're picked. So are the how often do the like does the first overall pick actually live up to the hype? Is it is it you know what what's the what's the percentages of teams actually getting it right with that first pick? Yeah, so there's been 28 or there were 28 first overall picks in that span 85 to 2012 and 8 of them, which is a little less than 29%, finished with the highest career value in that draft. So about, you know, roughly 30% chance drafting number one, you're going to get the player who produces the most value in that draft. And then what's interesting is if you look at, like, at those other rest of them, uh, about 11% had the second highest value, about 11% had the third highest value, and about 11% had the fourth highest value. So right there, you're, you're at roughly, you know, 60% of these first overall picks finishing the top four in career value in their draft. So very rarely do teams just completely whiff with that first overall pick. Right. I mean, I've only found four players who finished outside the top 10 in career value in their draft class, even though they were picked number one overall. Purvis Ellison, Michael Olubakandi, who we already mentioned, Kwame Brown, who we already mentioned, and Greg Oden, who we already mentioned. Let's take it to the team level. All right, you said you, you don't like this system as much for evaluating players individually, but what about teams? Is it, are you, is it good for determining which teams are the most successful? Yeah, like I said, I think over a long period of time, if, if you look at this, you, you can see teams that have consistently overperformed in the draft. In other words, they got more value out of the draft than they should have expected based on, than should have been expected based on where they were picking. And you want to take a guess as to which team had the best draft score in that era? Uh, if I'm guessing, and this is probably a recency bias, but I would say Popovich and the Spurs because they, they seem to mm. always find gems. Right, very close. They're, they're second. But one team head and shoulders above the rest is the really Phoenix who? Suns. The Phoenix really? Suns. Yeah, like so their cumulative score in this span is about 50% higher than the Spurs, which is, like I said, so it's not really close. These, these teams that are like two through five are, are kind of closely bunched, but the Phoenix Suns were just head and shoulders above everybody else. And it's, it's really interesting. So, so I mentioned Jeff Hornacek earlier, right? But they also got Sean Marion, who they picked ninth in 1999. He was actually arguably the best player in that draft class. Amari Stoudemire in 2002, again, they picked him ninth, but he's arguably the best player in that draft class. 
And then look at the other picks they got. They got Michael Finley with the 21st pick. He turned out to be a really good NBA player. They got Dan Marley with the 14th pick. They got Steve Nash with the 15th pick. They got Cedric Sabalos with the 48th pick. So they got a lot of quality guys, all-star type players, you know, picking ninth or later in, in those drafts. All right, so the, the importance here is where they're picking and the value that they're, that they're getting from where they're slotted, not necessarily who's, who's picked the most superstars. Because, I mean, obviously, you know, Michael Finley, Dan Marley, great players, you know, apart from Steve Nash, none of those are set the world on fire type players. But here's the thing, right? Like, that, I think what people confuse a lot of times with the NBA draft, the chance that you're going to get like an all-star type player is incredibly small. Yeah. And if you can get a guy who can be a quality starter for, say, 10 years, I mean, you've had a good draft, I think, right? Unless unless you're making the top overall pick where you should really be aiming for like a transformational, transformational type player. Any other draft spot almost, I mean, if you can get a guy, like I said, who's a solid 10-year starter, I think it's a success. Yeah, and so the Suns have been better at that than anybody. Yeah, I mean, and not only like solid starters, but they're getting guys who, you know, had a few all-star selections. So they're, they're even, they're above average starters, which is, like I said, it's, it's, it's that's, that's more than you can ask for, I think, when you, when you go into the draft. And, well, what would you okay, say so about, now, what would you ahead. say about rings, rings guy who's just going to say, well, what does it matter? They haven't won a title. So who cares? Who cares how many, you know, role players they get in the, in the second round? Who cares? I don't, I don't talk to those types of people. So. <laughs> I think it's best if we all just stop talking to that guy. Like, yeah, exactly. I think that's that's what we're trying to teach people above all else is that, hey, there's some nuance to this. Not, not everything is black and white. Some things require complex systems like the Kodraftco system. Copyright 2017. Oh, you know what? Since we're talking about teams, too, let me make a note here because this is important that I decided to give full credit for the pick to the team that drafted that player, even if that team immediately traded the player. You know what I mean? So, like, for example... So Charlotte gets credit for Kobe? Right. So Charlotte gets credit for Kobe because Kobe was drafted by Charlotte and traded to the Lakers. So, yeah, the Lakers don't get credit for drafting Kobe, but they do get credit for drafting Marc Gasol, who never played for the team. So it's kind of a wash over a long period of time. But just wanted to make that note because that would have been very difficult to sort of uh, decide who should get credit for a draft pick whenever he was traded. You know, it's hard to tell. Was that guy, did another team tell them to pick that guy or did they pick that guy on their own and then trade him? You know what I mean? So it's kind of hard to figure out who should get the credit for it. So I just decided, okay, we'll just give the credit to the team that that officially picked him. Oh, yeah, I think that's fair. You get into a whole just snowball of problems if you go any other way, I think. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So, all right. Who's the who's the bum team? I think we already kind of hinted at that in our uh, in our first podcast that we mentioned about the the draft picks. There there is a team. I know this one. There is a team that stands out above the rest. Oh yeah. I mean, so just like the the Suns sort of run away with the title of most successful team in the draft, the this team runs away with the title of least successful team in the draft, and that's the Clippers. The L.A. Clippers have just had a horrible draft history and believe it or not okay so from 85 to 2012 they selected 11 players in the top five which is two more than any other team every single one of those guys produced a negative draft score wow every single (laughs) one 
<laughs> so they're batting a thousand in terribleness, at least. Yeah, and I mean, you gotta so like, look, give some points for consistency. I mean, just like go through some of the guys they picked. Benoit Benjamin, they took third overall. They took Reggie Williams fourth overall. They took Danny Ferry second. Danny Ferry was a decent NBA player, but didn't did not produce a career that you would expect from based on a second overall pick. Candy, who we already mentioned, they picked first overall. Darius Miles, remember him? He was the third overall pick. Oh, yeah. Even Sean Livingston, uh, really good NBA player, but he was the fourth pick in his draft, and he really has not produced, as you would have expected, a fourth pick to produce. Of course, he had some terrible injury problems as well, but yeah. still, like, I mean, to go 0 for 11 in terms of getting a player who, who doesn't reach his expectations, you know, that, it's just... It's incredible. An incredible run of futility. Yeah. I mean, I got my hopes up once they once they got rid of that bigot and Balmer came in. And I was like, all right, it's a new era. They're going to change things around. And then they released that logo, man. And I was like, oh, God, Clipper's still going to Clipper. That just, that just shows me you're, they're still making overall bad decisions. Because that logo yeah, and no. his jerseys are so terrible. And some might say, what does that have to do with their drafting ability and i say everything because it's just overall decision making ability and so and so that i mean that is you know halfway facetious but i do think there is something and i want to ask you i want to ask you this question um and maybe you don't have an answer for it i don't know if there's a system that could prove this but i i always wonder when you're evaluating these players if you know, if the onus on the bust is on the player or on the organization, because like you say, all right, so the Clippers select 11 players and in a row in the top five who are all busts. And at some point, you know, well, yeah, okay, right, wait, well, let's maybe not say busts, but they didn't reach compared you, to their, yeah, yeah, yeah sorry, compared to the, where they were drafted. They didn't, they didn't live up to that, to that draft slot, the value they should have created. Um, right. But at some point, you have to say, is it? Are they just getting? Are they just getting unlucky with players, or is it just the organization? You're putting players into a dysfunctional or um, irresponsible system, or incompetent system, and so they have no chance to be successful. So Darius Miles may have had all the skills in the world, but he got thrown into this organization that couldn't do anything right. For 20 years so of course he's going to fail whereas on the other side you have every player that the spurs draft um ends up being you know a decent player maybe not an all nba player but they're they're finding gyms everywhere same way like in the nfl the patriots can take a guy off the street and turn him into a starter on your fantasy team um what do you think kind of to that logic i mean i'm sure there's it's on a case by case basis, but just the the idea that the team actually that a player goes to and the personnel that they have to deal with really has kind of a lot to do with whether or not he's a success. I mean, I don't have much to add other than yeah, you're absolutely right. Like like you know, it, the the situation you are placed in has a a large influence on the player you will become. I think. And yeah. I, I don't think it's a fluke, for example, that the Clippers consistently got duds in the draft. I, I, it, I think there's a problem with, one, their evaluation of the talent available, and two, like you said, just the whole culture. Probably not, not a good 
culture fit for many players. Whereas the, the example you gave of the Spurs, yeah, it seems like every year they're picking late in this first round, right? And they're always getting these gems. Like they're getting a Tony Parker or they're getting a Ginobili in the second round or they're getting a George Hill uh, late, you know, late in the draft. So I, I think, yes, yeah, system really matters. I think culture really matters, those two things. And, and, and so, yeah, there is an element of luck involved, but there is also an element of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? There, there is skill. I mean, yeah, I guess skill is the best word. There, there is a skill to this, and, and certain teams have that skill, and certain teams don't have that skill, it appears. Yeah, if, you're, if your organization's a dumpster fire, a 19-year-old kid is probably not going to do a whole lot to change that with, you know, very rare exceptions. And it's also a very rare, like, a very rare exception of, like, the Spurs when they got Tim Duncan or, like, the Celtics uh, this year, even though they moved to number three. But... The teams drafting in the top three are usually there for a reason because they just don't have their crap together. And bad bad teams, more often than not, continue to make bad decisions. But let's move, let's transition to who, the, the actual decision makers of the team. So you applied your system to to GMs. All right. So who's the who's the hot shot best GM when it comes to the draft? From not trades and free agent signings. That's doesn't apply here, but who's just in the draft? Who's the best GM in the lottery era as far as hitting it, getting success? All right. So first, yeah, just so what I did was not all these guys were necessarily the GM because it's not always the GM who makes the call. Like for example, um, uh, Larry Bird was not officially the GM for the Pacers these last few years. I think he was president of basketball operations or something like that. But Larry Bird was the guy who was who was making the selections. So okay. what I did was I, try, I tried to identify the executive in charge of making the decision. Just, just I mean, we can say GM just generically, but this is gonna be the, the executive who was in charge of making that choice. Gotcha, and, the drafter. Right, and so I mean, this shouldn't be a surprise because we already said the Suns uh, have been the most successful franchise. Brian Colangelo is number one in terms of having the best total score for an executive. You have chosen wisely. And, you know, Colangelo, was just, he was able to get a number of steals in the draft. I already mentioned some of those guys, Finley and Nash. And he picked Wesley Person, 23rd overall, and he turned out to be a really useful player. He took Steven Jackson, 42nd overall. Uh, he actually drafted Marcin Gortat as well. And he was a 57th overall pick, and he's been a really good NBA player. So Colangelo's been yeah. very good at finding talent late in the draft. Do you and know what his one base is? Yeah, he's. I was about to say he's. He left. He left sunny Phoenix and had a had a big time miss. Right. So what what was the, what was that big time miss? What you know it obviously. Uh, Barn Barnyani, Bar right. Bargnani. Right. Barnyani was taken number one overall in two thousand six, and he is. Is he even in the NBA anymore? I don't think he is. Is he? No. Or is he injured? Oh, no, I don't, I don't think he's even... been in for a while. Right. Yeah. So now that well, he that he showed him, up he showed up on the uh, the Knicks. For a little bit, and had that that clip where he like took off running and tried to almost dunk from the free throw line, and went went like a foot in the air and collapsed and fell. That I think that was his actual career highlight. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, he was a big miss, obviously. But like I said, early in his career um, with the Suns, he got really good value with later later picks so very good two other guys who you shouldn't be surprised to hear they're on this list jerry west 
who right has always had a good reputation for for finding talent and Popovich. Yeah, I probably would have guessed him if I had to guess not knowing I probably would have guessed Jerry West would have been number one right so he was second to Colangelo and Popovich was third now Popovich and R.C. Buford. So Popovich for a while was considered the general manager, and then R.C. Buford came in and took that title. But I think Pop probably had a lot of influence on those picks. I'm sure of it. And so I think if you combine Buford and Popovich together and said they were one guy, they they would, as a team, go to number one on the list um, over Colangelo. Yeah. I know people who but, work at the Spurs, and Popovich controls everything in that franchise. Yeah. Even like down to marketing campaigns and things like that that dude that dude is in charge and hey he's earned it so other end of the spectrum well okay we this should be pretty predictable here right where this is gonna go yeah uh, yeah and, and what this and this is a, another runaway elgin baylor who was the gm of the clippers for years and years and years he chose poorly by by far the worst drafter uh among executives and it's not even close the, the guys behind he, him, Jerry, oh God. How did he hold on to that job for so long? Just can, I, I guess that's, now that's that good, we know what we know a little bit more about what their owner was like, maybe it explains a little bit that he just just poor poor management all around. Yeah, it, it's it's just bizarre. I know. It, it, part of it could have been just Baylor. Of course, was a brilliant player for the Lakers, and maybe he's just. A uh, guy who was beloved locally. I don't know. I don't know why why the, the Clippers held on to him that long. I really don't. So I mean, I don't, we don't need to go through the picks Baylor made. We already talked about some of the poor picks the Clippers had earlier, so we don't need to go through that. Another name that comes up here that actually comes up second that's probably going to be surprising to some people is Jerry Krause, um, the the orchestrator of the Bulls. Yes, that Jerry Krause. So if you take an objective look at his draft record, it's not really that good. Like he, so early in his tenure, he got he made some really good picks. Picked Horace Grant tenth overall. Horace Grant was a really good NBA player. Got B.J. Armstrong eighteenth overall. Armstrong was a solid NBA starter. He got Kukoc twenty ninth. Kukoc one of the best six men of all time. So those were really good picks. But like some of the other guys he picked up, Keith Lee, who he picked eleventh overall, did not turn out to be a good NBA player. Brad Sellers he picked ninth overall, not really a good NBA player. Stacy King sixth overall. Didn't really be, wasn't really a great player, but like the worst stretch he had, and this is like post Jordan Bulls where they were just absolutely terrible. He had five number one picks from 2000 to 2002. He got, and listen to this list. Or number one, you just five, mean first round picks. His first round first picks, round not picks. I'm sorry, yeah. yeah, I'm saying yeah, not number one at all. Sorry, five first round picks, 2000 to 2002. Listen to this list of guys he selected: Marcus Pfizer fourth, Chris Mim seventh. Dalibor Bogarich, 24th, Eddie Curry, 4th, and Jay Williams, 2nd. That is not a good run of picks. Yeah, he, dra- he drafted the 4th best player with the last name Curry. <laughs> and that may even be a stretch. In the Steph, Steph's sister plays basketball too, doesn't she? She's probably, she might be better than Eddie Curry, who knows? Wait, which, which Curry's? So we're putting Steph, obviously, ahead. Uh, Michael Curry... And Del Curry? Are those the other Curries you're thinking uh, about? No, what's his, bro- uh, his brother? Oh, Seth. Okay, well, then maybe we'll put yeah. him fifth. Because Michael Curry was actually okay. a half-decent NBA player. Was he be- <laughs> Let's do a whole episode on ranking the Curries. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, like, those guys, just, just not a good list of players. Of course, Williams had that tragic uh, motorcycle accident. So, 
who knows? He may have turned out to be a, a reasonable player, but still, that, that was not a good run of picks, and and that really, really hurt the Bulls. I mean, that they, they, then for the next several years after that, really weren't a, a very good team. So I know this. I always like to put pretty bows on things, but and you argue you argue for nuance and complexity. But is there anything, looking back at what you found doing all this research, that you would if, advice that you would give? general managers which you have you have been in that position before with you know teams have sought out your opinions on things but if you were going to evaluate players for a draft and you had to say all right these are some of the factors that lead to being a having a successful draft either from a player perspective a team perspective what would you say well okay so first of all this this all this stuff we were talking about it really had nothing to do with who you should pick, right? We, we need to make that. But it's clear. definitely like, hindsight. Yeah, it's definitely hindsight. But I was wondering this, if this, you, yeah, if you saw any any kind of patterns or anything like that 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 would change kind of the way you look at the draft if you were the actual person in there pulling, you know, or writing names on a card. So okay, so I've been involved with a couple teams and. The one thing I think that happens that is detrimental to the team's drafting is they put too much emphasis on potential and they don't pay enough attention to actual production. You know what I mean? Yeah. So they'll, they'll draft some guy because he has uh, a, a, you know, a long wingspan and he can jump out of the gym. And if you look at his college stats, you'll, you'll, you'll be wondering well what does this guy actually do in the basketball court though you know what what does he actually produce and and then you'll have a guy who you look at his college stats and you're like this guy's a really good player and yet they don't draft him because he's too small or some any other thing they can come up with they so like i think like good examples that are like draymond green right i think one of the one of the problems people had with green was that he was too small right he was too small to be an nba power forward and they didn't actually watch him play. Like, if you actually watched, I felt like if you actually watched him play and you looked at his stat sheet, you're like, this guy's really, really good. He's like the best player in the Big Ten, which is a good basketball conference. So why are we placing so much emphasis on his height when he has shown he can play the game? Or like another guy that comes to mind is Jeremy Lin. Like, Jeremy Lin, if you look at his college stats at Harvard, he was a really, really good college player. And yet for various reasons probably one of them you know is which is we're not going to get into this yeah well just <laughs> which you know the, the sort of the negative stereotypes right that, that yeah. he, he wasn't he wasn't selected um so yeah i don't know I, I think that's the big thing though is that they get they get carried away with these these measurables like height and wingspan and and vertical and those sorts of things and they don't actually weight actual production enough yep well now what they can do, and there's still time before the 2017 draft, is they can go back and use the Kadrafco system to, to look and see, find patterns themselves of what players, what teams have been successful, and they can use that because, as we've proven here, the Kadrafco system is taking over. It is the only, the premier way to evaluate the NBA draft, and I'm sure it will be used for years to come. So everyone, please tweet at Jay Kabatko and thank him for inventing such a complicated system that I can barely understand. What? I'm still be still pulling Russell Westbrook duty here. Bro, what are you talking about, man? You're still you're overselling it. Again, it's it's 
It's retrospective. It's not prospective. This is not for making picks going forward. It's for examining picks that have already been made. So you're, you're but way if you don't, overselling it. If you don't learn from the past, you're doomed to repeat it. So LA Clippers, take a, take a look at this and see, what, see what's gone wrong. And don't do it again. All right. Let's wrap this up. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Stat Stories. We really do appreciate it. Be sure to check out our blog at blog.statmuse.com. We're going to have some results from StatMuse questions on there. You can go through and see how we arrived at some of the conclusions that we did. Also, be sure and check us out. We're, we're all over the place now. We are on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and find us in the ESPN app. Yes, we are in there. And it's not an insider content like they used to reduce Justin to. He's, he's free content now. Everyone can get to Draftco across the worldwide leader. Be sure and uh, hit the company up on Twitter, at StatMuse. You can get me at Chad J. Shanks or Justin, like I said, at Jay Kabatko. Thank you again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode of Stat Stories. What?